Open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 53. Well, I'm certain that Joseph probably didn't sleep very well after he heard the news from Mary that she was pregnant and of her own testimony by a miracle. Joseph was betrothed to Mary. Their lives were before them. Mary and Joseph would have had an arranged marriage by their parents. They would have had a date set for the wedding. They would have already started planning for their future together. But what Mary told Joseph was almost unbelievable. She said an angel named Gabriel appeared to her and told her that she was going to supernaturally conceive a baby. And even more than that, that this baby was to be the Messiah, the son of God. Mary believed the word of the angel, but Joseph, well, that's a hard one to believe, isn't it? And so the Bible says in Matthew chapter one, that Joseph went to sleep one night and he had a dream and an angel appeared to him. And this is what the angel said. Matthew 1, 20, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And really that last line is the hope, was the hope of Israel, should have been the hope of Israel. And that is that this Messiah would come to save his people. And his people are the Jewish people. That, that was the hope for these that were Jews the revelation given to Joseph really was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53. And, and it was a prophecy that Jesus would come, who is God's servant, and he would be our substitute. So the title of my sermon here this morning is, Behold, Jesus, God's Promised Substitute. This is the last in our series on Isaiah chapter 53. So we're going to try to make it from verse 7 down to verse 12. We might not make it the whole way, but we're going to do our best. This is the fourth of the servant songs you find in Isaiah. There are other individuals and groups of people called servants of God in Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet is called a servant of God. Israel sometimes are, is called a servant of God. But in four special passages, the servant of God is the promised Messiah, the one who would come to atone for our sins. And really the purpose of this passage of scripture right here is to prophesy that God's servant will succeed to provide salvation through his substitutionary atoning sacrifice. So if you look in verse 50, or sorry, in chapter 52, verse 15, or I'm sorry, verse 13 through 15, you can see that's really where this prophecy starts. And in those three verses, God the Father presents his son, his son as the servant of God who will succeed in providing salvation through his substitutionary suffering and death on the cross. Notice verse 13, behold, so he's presenting his servant, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall, in other words, succeed. He shall prosper. And what will his success be like? Well, he will be so successful. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted, which is really a prophecy that he will be resurrected. He will ascend and then he will be exalted and sit at the Father's right hand as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And then notice in verse 14, this, the tone of this changes because what we see in verse 14 is the servant which succeeds through his suffering. So verse 
13 is like the, the victory march to heaven. And then verse 14 is like coming back, remembering how he gained the victory. And it's through his suffering. And notice verse 14, it says that he will sprinkle. This is a reference to his atonement. He will sprinkle many nations. And our text is going to be in verses 7 through 12. But if you look in and of, of chapter 53, but if you look in verses 1 through 10, you can see those verses, there's something that changes there. The, the tense changes. So in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 52, it was this look forward. This was a prophesying of the future. But then in these 10 verses in chapter 53, 53 it's a look back. And what you see in these 10 verses is that there is a Jewish prophet who is on the other side of the cross. And he's remembering, recalling what the Messiah did for them to atone for their sins. And he's also recalling that Israel rejected him. In fact, they still are rejecting him. And so this is a gospel call to the Jewish people to believe in their Messiah that he suffered in their place. And then if you look at verse 11 and 12, once again, the father speaks back up and it goes back to prophesying with this future tense. And he concludes with the triumph of his servant. So let's read Isaiah 53. We're going to read verse, actually, we're going to start in verse six and we're going to go down to the end of verse 12. Would you do this with me? Would you stand up as I read God's word? Isaiah 53, starting in verse 6, we'll go down to verse number 12. The scripture reads, but he was pierced for, actually I started verse 5, started verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and he and makes intercession for the transgressors. Lord, we're so thankful for the truths that are found in this text of scripture. And so Lord, may we understand what Christ has done for us. May we continue to believe that this is true of us. Lord, may we apply this to our everyday life. May we apply this even throughout this week as we go to work, as we go home, as maybe some have vacation. Lord, I pray that, that Christ will reign in our hearts by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're reading the news, you've probably read about Gaza and some of the things that are happening there. And I was wondering if you heard about the, the man in Gaza who was saved. There was someone who preached, actually, Isaiah 53 in Gaza. And a man heard it, and he came to Christ, and he was baptized in Gaza. Did you hear that story? It's from Acts chapter 8. 
And it's the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And of course, Philip the evangelist, God sent him there to Gaza. And there was the, the Ethiopian eunuch. And he was reading Isaiah 53 and he didn't understand it. He didn't know what was going on. In fact, the question he asked in Acts 8 was, of whom is this prophet, Isaiah 53, speaking of? And he, he reads even verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53. And the response back to him from Philip is this, or the response is recorded, is that Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, that's Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. So Isaiah 53 is the good news about Jesus, and Philip re-preached that, and this man was converted. And we saw last week that really the, the sermon of Isaiah 53 is, can be summed up like this. That is that God's servant is the only one able, and that's verse 1, is the only one able to succeed to provide salvation. And he does that through his humility, that's verse 2, his rejection, that's verse 3, and then his substitutionary death, that's verses 4 through 10, which reconciles all who believes. And so what we're doing this morning is we're going to hone in, we're going to focus in on the substitutionary atonement of Christ and his work for us on our behalf. And we're going to look at four ways in which Christ is our substitute. And the first one is that he is the willing one who suffered for the willfully disobedient. He is the willing one who suffered for the willfully disobedient. In fact, look at verse 6 and 7. You can see an illustration of sheep in both of these verses. In verse 6, we are pictured as sheep who have gone astray. And verse 6 rightly accuses us of willful disobedience, like a sheep that, like sheep that wander away from the shepherd. And then notice the contrast in verse number 7 with the servant who is the one who willingly obeys like a lamb led to the slaughter. And so you can see this contrast of the sheep. One, one group of sheep are those who go away from the shepherd and one who willingly, obediently follows the shepherd to be killed, to be sacrificed. And so verse number six, all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way. So remember this, the preacher is preaching to Israel. And he's saying, we, we, who are the we here? The we are the Jewish people who have strayed from Yahweh, their God. And of course, one of the most precious texts of scripture in the Old Testament is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. L-O-R-D, all caps, that's the name for God, Yahweh, that's his covenant name. Yahweh is my shepherd. And truly, God offered himself, God was the shepherd for Israel. And so what's happening here in this text of scripture is he's saying, you have rejected your shepherd. I mean, here is Yahweh God. He cares for Israel. He's provided for Israel. He loves he loves them. He cares about their daily lives. He cares about their sin, but they don't care. They've gone their own way. And you can see that in verse six, this idea of I'm going my own way. You can see how personal sin is against God. It's like, I am going to do what I want to do. In fact, what you can see here in this text of scripture is that Israel is putting themselves in the place of God. When a person sins against God, ultimately what they're doing is they're saying, I can run life however I want to run life. I can be my own God. This is true of Israel, and this is true of all of us when we sin. John Stott wrote this. The concept of substitution is at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself 
where only man deserves to be. And so verse 6 and 7 is this contrast of us substituting ourselves in the place of God, defying God, and then the end of verse 6. Notice the end of verse 6, God's provision of salvation. And the Lord, that's Yahweh, the covenant name for God, and the Lord has laid on him, that's the servant, the iniquity of us all. And, and the word iniquities speaks of sin that deserves punishment. And this is a, a callback again to those sacrifices that were made in the, the temple. And if you can just imagine the temple and what the daily rituals were like, th- there was blood everywhere. Not necessarily all of the temple, but there was a constant flow of blood because there were animals being sacrificed every day, every week, every month throughout the year. I mean, it was, it was a central part to the religion found in Israel. Almost one-sixth of the laws in the Pentateuch deal with sacrifices and offerings. And if you read through the book of Leviticus, you're just overwhelmed with all of the sacrifices. There were sacrifices for burnt offerings and grain offerings and sin offerings. There were trespass offerings. There were peace offerings. There were There were offerings for individuals and for families and for leaders and for priests and by the high priest for the entire nation on the day of atonement. There were bulls sacrificed and goats and doves and sheep. I mean, it it just goes on and on. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, when you see Mary and and, uh, Joseph going to the temple, they were going to the temple to actually offer a sacrifice. In In the book of Leviticus, God promised Israel that he would atone for their sins through those various sacrifices. But here's the catch. The atonement was temporary. It was just for those sins they had just committed. It didn't go into the future. It was only for those sins at that time. And truthfully, it could not atone for the eternal judgment of their sins. But there was a hope. That God gave to them that if they were to trust in Yahweh God and they were to trust in the sacrifice that God had made, whether through that person or through a priest or through the high priest, that God would forgive their sins. In fact, one of the things that happened when they sacrificed these animals is they would put the one who was killing the animal would put his hand on the head of that animal and it demonstrated that that your sin and your judgment is passed from the sinner to that animal, to the sacrifice. In other words, that sacrifice was taking that one's place, the sinner's place. He was atoning as, he was the atoning sacrifice for their sins. Atonement is the price that covers sins. So there can be forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Notice this passage in Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the blood of an animal was the purchase price that paid for their sins and made forgiveness possible. And only It was only for those Sins they were confessing at that moment, not for their future sins. And so they needed a sacrifice. Israel needed a sacrifice. Really, all of us needed a, needs a sacrifice that is going to not just take care of our temporary sins, our sins now, but actually take care of, our, of our, the sins of our entire life and actually of the consequence of our sins for eternity. Hebrews 9 and 10 make it clear that animal sacrifices could never truly eternally atone for sins. Those animals could not truly satisfy God's wrath for the eternal punishment of sin. Because our sins deserve eternal wrath in hell. And only an eternal one who is holy and perfect could take that upon himself and pay for that in full. And praise the Lord that Jesus Christ is that Lamb of God, the eternal sacrifice. And that's why in John chapter 1 verse 29, the Bible records... That John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's John the Baptist who's announcing that here's the Lamb. Jesus is that sufficient sacrifice. 
And who is making the sacrifice in Isaiah 53.6? Notice Isaiah 53.6. Who's that high priest, that priest, or that person that's making the sacrifice? Well, it's the Lord himself. The Lord laid upon the servant the sins of us all. And that's exactly what the New Testament authors testified about Jesus. I'm sure Paul was thinking about this text when he wrote this in Romans 3.25. God put forward, really Jesus was put forward by God as a propitiation or a satisfaction for the wrath of God for sins. You could say an atonement by his blood to be received by faith. And you know, in the Old Testament, there was an atonement made for sins. They had to trust God that that was going to be applied to them. And for us, as we look to Christ, he is the atonement for our sins. And we must look to him and trust that he must, he applies that to us by faith. And so you can see in verse number seven, this illustration of Christ as the sacrificial lamb continues on. He's this innocent one. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And the word oppressed there is speaking of the idea that someone is abusing someone else. And and. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, that word is used to describe the suffering that Israel faced under the taskmasters, task, taskmasters of Egypt. And so verse 7 is saying that Jesus, the servant, is going to be afflicted. He's going to be oppressed. And of course, that came true at the trial of Jesus when they falsely accused him. They nailed him to a cross. But notice also in verse number 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. The Hebrew uh, grammar of this word afflicted indicates that he allowed himself to be afflicted. So it wasn't like he was forced to be afflicted. This is the idea that he willingly stepped forward and allowed this affliction to happen to him. This is his self-humbling. John 10, 18, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord. So this text of scripture is saying that Jesus willingly volunteered to go to the cross and to die in our place. This is a, this is a humbling of himself for the glory of God. And, I, and I'm certain that Paul had this text of scripture in mind when he, when he wrote that famous Christian passage, Philippians chapter two, about Christ, how he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in the likeness, found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what you see in this text of scripture is that Jesus is the obedient one who humbled himself to die for the disobedient ones, that's us. And notice it was his delight. It was really his joy to humble himself in this way. And when Jesus stepped to that cross, he did it of his own volition. He did it in delight to obey his father. I mean, when, when the disciples tried to stop everything, he said, I could call 10,000 angels right now to stop this, but I'm not going to. You see, it was the delight of Jesus to sacrifice himself to humble himself for the glory of his father. And this is the mindset that God calls us to have as well, doesn't, doesn't he? See, children, if you're in here today, you might think about obeying your parents as something, it's a, a drudgery. It's like, why do I have to do this at this time in my life? I can't wait till I get out of the home. I don't have to have anyone ever tell me to do anything anymore. And everybody laughs at that one. And those kids usually sign up for the military. But actually, children, if you're in here and you're listening to me right now, if not, listen up. Obedience to your parents is actually a way for you to be like Jesus. Because Jesus voluntarily put himself under, humbled himself under his father to obey him with joy, even though it was difficult. And I 
believe that his obedience was way more difficult than any obedience you ever have to do. And he did it with joy. And church humility in word and in deed, it's not a negative quality. That's what, that's what the world thinks. Like, oh, you don't want to ever apologize. You don't ever, wanna, you don't ever want to humble yourself. But actually, we glorify God by doing that. When you humble yourself to serve other people, even if you're not recognized, if you humble yourself in that way, it glorifies God. I know many of you have written letters and cards to Justice Purden this week and praying for him as he's in the hospital. And some of you brought meals by. and You took time out of your day. You took finances that maybe you would use for something else and you served in that way. To humble yourself in that way glorifies God. When you humble yourself to confess your sin to someone else, you, you did something against them, you said something that was harsh or not kind, and you confess and apologize, you humble yourself, that glorifies God. When you go without, when, when you think about these, these missionaries that we said in the prayer time to, that we could support, and you think, well, maybe, maybe I could take my, my Starbucks I'm going to get this week, or maybe I could take you know, this I'm going to spend on myself. Maybe I'll give that up to, to further the gospel in this area. You humble yourself in that, area, that way. You have self-sacrifice that actually glorifies God. And Jesus humbled himself in our place. And, and you know how we know what was real? Look at verse 7. He didn't open his mouth. When he was accused, he opened on his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like the sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. They accused him of being a rebel, of being a sinner, of being a traitor, and that was not true. But he didn't answer back. He received that. And why? Because he was doing that for the rebels and for the traitors and for the sinners. He was doing that for you and for me. Christ took our place as our substitute. He is the willing one who suffered for the willfully disobedient. And then he's the innocent one who was executed for the guilty. He's the innocent one who was executed for the guilty. Look at verse number eight. By oppression... And judgment, he was taken away. Verses six, I mean, verses seven and eight describe the unrighteous trial that Jesus had before the Sanhedrin and later on before Pilate. And judgment there refers to the judicial proceedings that declared Jesus as guilty and therefore deserving of death. And if you can imagine the scene before Pilate, there were, there were mobs of people led by the religious leaders and they were crying out what? Crucify him, crucify him. They were crying out for him to be executed, for him to be declared guilty as a traitor and to be executed, condemned on a cross. But what's remarkable about that is that there were so many individuals around that testified he was not guilty. And three times, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. John 18, 38. John 19, 4. John 19, 6. So, so the one who actually condemned him as guilty actually said, I don't find any fault in him. In fact, so much so that he washed his hands. Matthew 27, 24 reports that he said that Jesus was innocent while he did that. Even his wife, Pilate's wife, sent him a message and said, he's a righteous one. Matthew 27, 19. Even the one who betrayed him, the one who turned him in, Judas, he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. In fact, even when he went before King Herod and had his little show trial for that one, he said, in Luke 23, 15, that he found nothing that Jesus was worthy of for death. In Luke 23, 41, we have a criminal who's executed on the cross next to Jesus. And he says that he was guilty, but he looks to Christ and he says he's innocent. And even one of the centurions that were below the the cross of Jesus and saw him suffer and die, he said that this one was a righteous man. And the point is this, is that yes, he was condemned as guilty, deserving of death, but there were many who testified that he was innocent. 
because he was, because he was sinless. Notice verse number eight says, and as for his generation, who considered, who meditated on, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? What's this generation? Who is this generation? Well, the generation is, are, are those who were alive and who were witnessing the trial and the execution of Jesus. Those were the ones who were alive at his trial and at his execution. In fact, if you look down in verse number eight, you can say, you can see, it says, his generation, and as for his generation, who considered, so now they're, they're thinking, so those who, who witnessed the trial, those who witnessed the execution are meditating, they're considering what's happening. And notice who considered that he, that's the servant, was cut off, that he's killed out of the land of the living, and he's stricken for the transgressions of my people. And the word stricken is, is the word used in the Old Testament of God's divine judgment. In, in Genesis chapter 12, and verse 17, it's used of Pharaoh being judged because he was, he was intending to sin against Abraham's wife. And so what you see here in this text is that at the execution of Jesus, those were around, they were looking at Jesus, and yes, they believed that Jesus was being executed by God. Remember, he was on the tree, he was on the cross, so he was cursed, and they viewed him as one who was cursed by God. And so what's remarkable about this is that no one around there considered that this man was being judged by God for their sins. They thought it was for his own sins. And so in this beautiful irony here, what you see is that the prophecy is that no one around would consider the true nature of what was going on. And what's the true nature of what was going on? Look at the end of verse number uh, eight there. The true nature of what was going on is that he was stricken for the transgressions of himself. No, of my people. That's the people of Israel. Those are the Jewish people. Jesus came to save them from their sins, but instead of believing in him, they rejected him. They condemned him to die. They didn't even consider that he was doing that on their behalf. Verse 10 is teaching what theologians call the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Penal means penalty as he paid for the penalty for our sins in full. And so Jesus Christ, when he was executed on the cross, it was executed, yes, by those soldiers who were around, yes, by the crowd who who called for him to be crucified, but it was actually that God the Father condemned him as one deserving to die, not for his own sins, but for our sins. That he was actually paying for the eternal penalty of our sins in hell. That's why at the very end of his life on that cross, before he took his last breath, he said, it is finished. And what he was saying is the price to pay for sins has been paid for. That's him saying that the atonement has been successful. And when you think about sins, you think about your own sins, do you think about the consequences for your sins? And you think about someone who's maybe murdered someone or someone who's uh, abused someone, and you might, you might automatically go to the thought of, oh, that person needs to go to, to prison for the rest of their life or maybe even be executed for their sins. But when you think about your own sins, think about sins like gossip or sins like sinful anger or lust or complaining. I mean, you think about those sins. Does your mind go to, I deserve to spend eternity in hell for those? It should, because that's what our sins, that's what we deserve for our sins against God. And so what we see here is that we should, those, we should think about Christ on the cross as the one who paid for those sins. So we should think about our sins and, and, and we should think about Christ on the cross paying for the eternal penalty of our sins. Christ satisfied God's wrath for our sins. And so if you believe in Jesus Christ, your belief is that Jesus 
paid for those sins. So we think about gossip and we think about laziness. And we think about bitterness. We think about our sins. We, we think, yes, I deserve to spend eternity in hell. But Jesus paid for those sins on the cross for me. And so Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Notice verse number nine. And then after he said, it's finished, he died and was buried. Verse number nine. And they made his grave with the wicked. This means that he died a death of a criminal. So you remember, there were two criminals next to him on the cross. And when a criminal died, you know, you take his body and you throw it in Gehenna. You throw it in the, in the trash, hump, uh, trash dump. And it's burned and it's gone. And no one has respect for that body. But notice in verse number nine, they made his grave with the wicked. So he, he died with those who are wicked and with a rich man in his death. So though he deserved to be buried with the criminals, he actually was buried in a rich man's tomb. This is saying he, he died as one guilty, but he was buried as one who was innocent. They made his grave with the wicked, but with a rich man in his death. And then Although, why did they do that? Why did they bury him with the rich? Why did Pilate allow Jesus' body to be buried in the rich man's tomb? Remember who that was, Joseph of Arimathea? Why did he do that? Well, verse 9 tells us, because he had done no violence. That's really the idea there. It's, this is the reason why. He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, even Pilate recognized this one was innocent. Jesus was innocent. And so he said, go ahead and take his body. And he was prophesied here to be buried in a rich man's tomb. And let's stop and let's remember this. This was written 700 years before this all happened. Okay. So as you read this and you're like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. That's right there. It's 700 years ago. I mean, what happened 700 years ago in America or whatever it was called back then? The Great Plains and mountains or whatever. Like what happened? I mean, can you imagine some some tribal person somewhere being able to prophesy that there would be in Simi Valley, a street called Cochrane Street and Lighthouse Bible Church, and you're sitting right here. You're like, well, that's pretty specific. Yeah, this is pretty specific, right? I mean, this is unbelievable. And so if you don't believe the Bible, but here's the thing, the Bible is true. In fact, if you go over to Israel, you can go to a place where there's a scriptorium. You can find a copy of the, the book of Isaiah, and it's a copy of this book right here. And it was dated, it's dated to have been copied somewhere around 200 years before Christ came. So even if you don't believe it was 700 years, it was at least 200 years. And that's still a long time ago. And the, my, my point is this, is that this is an amazing detail. And this should give us confidence in God's word right here. When you're reading this, you should have confidence like, this is the word of God. And here's, and here's the point of that. If you're like, ah, I don't really care about this kind of stuff, this Bible stuff, this Christianity stuff. Well, it's real, friends. It's real. And it's true. And what we're reading here, what we're talking about is the truth of God's word. It's not just some theory that some theologian made up. This is what the scripture speaks about. And so notice in verse number 10, you see this substitutionary atonement here. He, the innocent one is executed for the guilty, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So God the Father was the one who actually caused him to die. He's the one who punished him in our place. When his soul, that's the soul of the servant, Jesus, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So notice this right here, that the soul of Jesus is being offered and it's an acceptable sacrifice. This is actually the only acceptable sacrifice that God the Father would accept for the covering of our sins for eternity. Jesus is the eternal one. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is God and man. And so he was able to take on the full penalty of our sin on that cross. So the offering of his soul satisfied God's eternal wrath for our sin. That's what it's saying here. And then notice the result of that. Notice, notice the hallelujah. We got a hallelujah right there. Notice the hallelujah here. And that is in verse number 10. He says, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand means this, that 
God's will will be done through this Messiah. That is, the servant of the Lord will prosper. He will succeed, and he will succeed so much that here are two proofs of his success. What are the two proofs of his success? Verse number 10. He shall see his offspring. That means that he is going to be resurrected to life. And I'm sorry, he shall receive his, he shall see his offspring, which means he will resurrect souls to spiritual life. And then he shall prolong his days, which means he is resurrected to life. So notice that first phrase there. He shall prolong his days. That's speaking of the prophecy that though he would die, God the Father would resurrect him from the dead. So he would extend his days. So here's one who's going to die, but then he's going to live afterwards. And then you see the next phrase, he shall see his offspring. This is the proof of the success of the atonement that he will resurrect souls to spiritual life. The offspring there, or you could say his descendants there, are those spiritual sons that, will, that, God, that God will save so that they will be the children of God. Hebrews says that Jesus tasted of death for everyone. Notice the scripture, Isaiah, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, that Jesus tasted of death for everyone, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. And oh, church, that is the hope right there. That's the hope of the cross. That's the hope of the resurrection is that he saves our souls. He makes us a son or a daughter of God. He adopts us into his family and we can be with him forever in glory. And that's what that prophecy is there in Isaiah chapter 53, that he shall see his offspring. He will have spiritual offspring. He will resurrect souls to life. We sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And if you remember in that song, you, you can see this, this theology in there, this teaching in there. Mild he lays his glory by. So he laid his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise sons of earth. Born to give us a second birth. And that is the hope of his death and resurrection. And then last of all, he is the living one who was resurrected for his spiritual offspring. And he is the righteous one who justifies all those who believe. Notice in verse number 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So the servant will be satisfied with the atoning work his Soul provided, and then notice this, probably one of the most glorious parts of this whole text of scripture right here. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. And look at verse number 11. I just want to focus on, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. What's it talking about when it says, by his knowledge? That's the knowledge of the servant of God. That's the knowledge of the righteous one. That's the knowledge of what he did. That's the knowledge of Isaiah 53 and how he atoned for our sin. By the knowledge of that righteous one, notice what God gifts to us. Many, he can make many to be accounted righteous. So here he's talking through this passage that we've all gone astray. We've sinned. We've transgressed. And now he says he's going to give something to us. And that is that through the righteous one, he's going to account his righteousness to us. This is the gift of justification. This is the gift of God imputing to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
And that only comes by what? By faith. So let's do this. Let's end this sermon by going to Romans chapter 3, verse 22. Would you turn to Romans 3, 22? Because I want to show you in Romans where this text of Scripture really is, is, there's a commentary on it, really where you see it fleshed out after the cross, where Paul writes about the righteousness of God. And in Romans, the righteousness of God means that all of us deserve the wrath of God for eternity. But Jesus, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous. And so in Romans chapter 3, if you look in verse 22, you can see that the righteousness of God is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So, so it's not like Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sinners, and therefore everyone is released from their sin. Is that how it works? No, it says right here that you must believe. You must have faith. And the Bible promises that when you believe, God gives you a gift, and it's the gift of Jesus' righteousness. And friend, that gift is a gift that lasts for eternity. No one can take it away from you. In fact, the Bible says in verse 22, Lonus, it says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That's declared righteous. That's like a, a judge that says, you're not guilty and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an atoning sacrifice, as a propitiation, as a, an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This is God's word and God's promise for you. Let me end with a story that I heard a pastor tell. I don't know if the story is true or not, but he told it. So, but definitely illustrates, I think, this text well. He said that, He's aware of a story of a, of a lady who was driving through Georgia, and she was driving through the, one of those small towns, and she was going 70, 75, and a 55, and she was pulled over. Of course, those officers are just waiting for someone like that to come through. And she was pulled over, and she had to go before the judge, and this lady was down uh, in life. She was not doing well financially, and she stood before this judge, and the judge said, you know, here's what you did. You went over the speed limit, and the fine's $100. And obviously, this must have been a long time ago. The fine's $100, and, and uh, you need to pay that. And the lady started crying. She says, I, I don't have $100, sir. And so please have mercy on me. And the judge said, man, I'm sorry. It's, it's $100. You were clearly going over the speed limit. You clearly broke the law. It's, you need to pay this fine. Or if you don't want to pay the fine, if you're not willing to pay the fine, you'll spend a night in jail. And this lady cried even more. And she said, sir, I, I don't want to spend a night in jail. And please ha have mercy on me and please pay this fine or please allow, allow this fine to be go, go away. I, don't, I can't pay this fine. And so the judge paused and he looked at this lady and he looked down and began to think. Then he stood up and he unzipped his robe he walked down, put on his jacket, and out of his jacket, he pulled out his wallet, and he took out of that wallet $100. And he went up to his bench, and he put the $100 in the bench, and then he went, took his jacket off, and walked up to the bench, and zipped his robe back on. And then he said to the lady, ma'am, you owe $100 for this fine, or a night in jail, and you must pay. And then he looked down, and he said, oh, look at right there. Someone paid $100 for you. <laughs> Do you accept this for yourself? And this lady cried. She says, yes, thank you so much. And again, I'm not certain if that story is true or not. But I do know of a true story. And that is that you and I were speeding down the highway of sin and rebellion to God. And Jesus Christ, he unzipped his, his independent use of his uh, deity. He, he clothed himself in humanity and he lived a perfect life in your place and he died in your place and then he went back to glory and he offers to you a gift and that is that he paid for the penalty of your sins in full. 
And if you receive that by faith, he gives you the gift of his righteousness. Friend, God offers that gift to you. I don't know if you're in here for the first time or maybe, maybe you've heard this before. And you've never truly repented and trusted in Christ. You're just living your life for yourself, cruising through life, thinking, I'll go my own way. I'll do my own thing. God, why don't you just leave me alone? And can I tell you that God actually will answer that? He actually will agree with that. He'll leave you alone. But when you die, you'll be alone for eternity. You'll pay for your sin. And how? But friend, if you trust in Christ, if you believe in him, if you receive him, he'll save you. And church, what a wonderful gift we have in our Savior. I mean, the, the, the righteousness we have in Jesus Christ should cause us to praise him, should cause us to live for him. With such a great gift comes great joy and great responsibility. The, first, the song we're going to sing next is called The First Noel. I'm going to have the musicians come up in just a moment. I'm, I think I'm going to have you guys play through the first verse in the chorus just so they can get the, it's a new rendering of it. But I want to read the words before we sing that. The song goes like this. Our sins he bore, yet his name we despised. And the hands that brought healing were pierced as he died. The author of life, there lifeless he lay as the grave cast its shadow and darkness reigned. Then out of death broke forth a great light. He rose up in victory, the glorious Christ. Now let us all with one accord bring praises to our King. All glory, power, and honor be forever unto him. Let's pray.